All right, thanks so much. This is one of my first times here. I've been here a long time ago, but I haven't been in a while. And so I don't know if, you know, this, Nick's making me record this on his phone. Um, so everything I say and do will be forever recorded, which feels a little FBI-ish to me. Um, so, and, I'm, and so I need to say to Nick, um, if that's your real name, thank, thank you. Thank you, Nick, um, for, making me, for making me do this. Um, yep. Um, so anyway, well, I'm excited to be here. Um, my name, once again, is John Trammell. I use he, him, his pronouns. Um, I'll give you just a, a sh- brief background um, in addition to the um, introduction in that um, if you can't tell uh, from my accent, I grew up in uh, central Wisconsin. Go Packers. I'm, I'm, I'm kidding, actually. I, I actually grew up in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and so, and um, then I moved to Atlanta, Georgia shortly after college. Um, and that's where, and, and in that time period, um, I got connected to Men's Stop and Violence um, through a professor uh, in my grad school program uh, at Georgia State University. And um, I was, at the time, I was pretty involved in, in racial justice work and anti-racism work. And uh, one, of, one of my professors said to me, um, she said, John, um, you know, you, you have a lot to say around race and class. And, um, but I'm wondering, like, what do, you, what do you know about gender justice? You know, and I did the, the normal thing that we good guy, quote unquote, good guys do, right? I said, oh, yeah, I have great relationships with women. Yeah, everything's, I'm, oh, it's all good. And um, she said, no, seriously, I, you know, hey, I want you to, I want you to check out this organization. Um, and so towards the end of my um, time in grad school, I went over to Men's Stop and Violence and kind of signed up for this internship. And uh, I was only there for a few weeks, and they ended up having a staff opening about the time I graduated. And they, they were like, hey, we want you to, um, to consider coming on board as a staff member. And I was like, yes, perfect. I've just got my master's, graduating. I can get right into a job. And they're like, and we, what we want you to do is to be, the, um, to be the administrative assistant for the office. And I was like, well, that's different than I expected to hear. Um, so and as I talked to them more, they said, no, what we're going to do is you're going to um, sit in one of our 24-week batter's intervention classes, um, and you're going through that class as any man in the, in the program does. And once you do the work on yourself and you do that work, then after that, we'll, we'll see what we can add into, to, on your, to your plate to do as far as program work, working with men um, through the organization. Um, and so I went, I went to the first class um, a few months, a month later, and, um, you know, my life was transformed. And so tonight is a little bit about some of the things that, uh, that I learned and did in my time at Men's Stop and Violence. I was there about five years um, before my partner and I and our children uh, moved here to Kansas City in 2009 and ended up being able to do uh, training all over the country as well as working with individual men who had been abusive in relationships with women. Um, and so Nick kind of mentioned at the beginning, um, you know, the different ways that forms of oppression are interrelated. And I want to name really clearly that, um, that, we're gonna, that tonight I'm going to be focused on, the way, you know, um, sexism and patriarchal masculinity. And within that, I want to be able to talk about it 
as best I can from an with an intersectional lens of looking at that, the ways that various forms of oppression overlap. But I have to name that I'm not an expert here tonight standing in front of you imparting any kind of wisdom, that everyone in this room brings their own experience and their own wisdom, and, and I, as my identity as a white, cisgendered, heterosexual, middle-class male, have lots of privilege and lots of ignorance still to this day that I am working through. So this isn't tonight a presentation from someone who has figured it out and has um, this perfect, eloquent like, explanation for you. Um, I'm just as likely to say something off base as anyone else in this room. Um, and so one of the tenets of Men's Style and Violence, and there's some actually handouts that I, I was going to start with. I forgot all about. This is for at the end, but these two can go out now. Anyway, so there's some um, core principles of, of Men's Style and Violence that are going to come around as well as a behavior checklist that we'll talk about here in just shortly. Um, but anyway, but I say that to say that... that you know, I don't want to be ever portrayed as, as like I got this figured out or I got it all together. That one of the core principles you'll see on this, on this sheet that's coming around is we are the work. And that I started my role with Men Stopping Violence sitting through a class, checking in weekly about my behavior that I'd used in relationships with women that were negative and harmful. And I continue to monitor and do that work now because I need to. And we're going to talk a lot more about why, all right, here shortly as we go through the presentation. So the next thing I want to say as a disclaimer is obviously this topic is very difficult and painful. We're talking about patriarchal masculinity and violence. And chances are that a significant number of the people in this room have, have experienced this in ways that are extremely harmful in their lives and painful um, so tonight, the, the, the topic of conversation can produce um, sort of feelings of, uh, you know, triggering those feelings from your experience. And I want to just say I hope everyone is able to do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself. I'm going to start with a video tonight because I want to start looking at individual men's behavior in relationship with women as a starting place. And then we'll dig deeper from there. So I'm going to have a video of a man who's re recounting his uh, his pattern of abuse uh, in relationship to partners in his life as well as children. And so there's, there's pieces of his story that, that could also be very hard to listen to and hear. And that could also create some uncomfortable and painful recollections. So if at any point it's difficult, I, once again, I welcome you to do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself. Um, and um, we'll go from there. So once... Once we're done with the video, um, I just want, as, as you're listening to his, him recounting his story, I want you to be thinking about, so what, what comes up for, for me? My name is Billy Street, and um, Juliet is my partner. Cynthia is a former partner who I abused. I told you all this was not easy. Um, Kristen, Katrina, Audrey, and Lauren are daughters in my life, and Jonathan is a son in my life. Um, I came to MSV because I'd hurt Cynthia, Kristen, and Lauren physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And I wanted to learn how to stop hurting people who choose to spend time with me and to stop hurting myself in the process. 
I continue with the community restoration program to help provide safety and justice for women and other marginalized people. In my worst incident of violence towards Cynthia, I punched at her with my right hand. I shattered the wall beside her. When she ran out of the house, I followed her, grabbed her, dragged her back into the house, and held her captive on the couch. I grabbed both of her wrists and crossed her arms across her chest and pressed her down into the couch so that she could not move. I called her names, told her she couldn't get away from me, and I spit on her. Cynthia felt afraid, hurt, shocked, unloved, <coughs> intimidated, dominated, and abused. Emotionally, she was devastated by the loss of trust in me. Physically, she was bruised where I grabbed her. Her arms were sore and bruised from my restraining her, and she felt afraid of me, untrusting, isolated, and hopeless. My pattern of abuse was to control Cynthia, Kristen, and Lauren by keeping them in the dark, making them feel inferior, intimidating them, and using violence. I would withhold emotions and information, not listen to them or respond, and not express my feelings to keep them in the dark so that they wouldn't know what I was thinking or what was going on. Um, I discounted their feelings and rights, I didn't ask for their help. I blamed them, accused them, and interrupted them, and isolated them from friends to make them feel inferior. I yelled at, ridiculed, embarrassed, and outshouted them to intimidate them. And when these didn't work, I controlled them by slapping, grabbing, restraining, and spitting on Cynthia, by grabbing and spanking Kristen and Lauren. I would escalate my abusive and controlling behaviors until I won. I had to control, and they couldn't win. Uh, my continued abuse gave Cynthia many bruises, abrasions, and a broken foot. It caused her to feel unattractive, ignorant, incompetent, guilty, and incapable of pleasing me. She was unable to enjoy sensual and sexual relationship with me. Um, since we separated, she has lived with a loss of relationship and has lost much of her life by spending time in our marriage and by going to counseling now, by trying to manage the uh, household with children in order to be away from me. Um, my continued abuse of Kristen and Lauren gave them bruises, caused them to distrust me and to be afraid of me. And during the worst times, <laughs> during the worst times, boy, it's hard to say. I don't think I can. Oh. Uh, during the period that I was being abusive to them, um, our community supported my abuse. 
um, and my authority to control Cynthia, Kristen, and Lauren. Um, three examples of the way they supported that. Our church supported my abuse by stating that I was the head of the household, that I had a right to control, and our minister repeatedly um, said that I had authority over them. Um, there were numerous people who witnessed the abuse and said nothing, didn't intervene in any way, and by not taking action it gave me power. And in fact, when we were in counseling, um, about my abuse, a marriage counselor asked Cynthia, what do you do to make him so angry? So that by saying that, she was saying, you know, it's your fault when she's supposed to be supporting Cynthia. Whew. Since uh, I came to MSV, I have, uh, continued to find a way to share power with my partner. Um, it's a continual struggle for me to stay away from abusive and controlling behaviors, and it takes uh, continual vigilance. But uh, I believe that I have a, an open sharing relationship with Juliet where she can talk to me about things and we can decide things together and uh, she's not afraid to be with me. And that makes a big difference. So, thank you. Question. I, I see the difficulties in, in talking and sharing the worst incident, the worst behavior you've used towards um, Cynthia. You say what was difficult about telling it? What was, you were emoting a lot. What was that about? Oh, the, um, it, saying what I did is not nearly as difficult as finally coming to the point of, of seeing the effects and the impact it's had on, uh, on Cynthia and Kristen and Lauren, and um, I continue to worry about how they're going to be because I showed them a way that is very dangerous for for young women going uh, going out in the world. Um, The piece that I couldn't say, I'll try again, is Kristen has tried to commit suicide. <sighs> and to think that my abuse drove her to that point. So that's, that's kind of what's going on.
So just maybe take a minute and take a deep breath because that's a lot to take in. So just want to take a few minutes to just to hear from you. So as you watch that, his account of his abuse and the impacts that it's had on his family, what came up for you? So if, just in case everybody couldn't hear that, I'm, I believe if, if I heard you right, you said you were really impacted by the level of transformation he appeared to have made in his life and taking responsibility and being accountable with no defensiveness and really just owning and naming that. So, okay. Thank you. What else? Yes. Sure, sure. Curious. Gotcha. Thank you. What else? What else? Go ahead. Yes. When I when you first started talking about the physical abuse, I immediately was like, "Okay, cool. That's not me." Mm. And um, and I immediately was just like, "Okay, cool. Like I, like I haven't done that." But then you started talking about like uh, emotional withholding and and not. Um, communicating and sort of keeping people that loved him in the dark and I was like oh well there's there it goes right so I um as much as I wanted to sort of distance myself hmm. from what he was saying I also then found like like uh and there was there were times where I was just like wanting to really distance myself but there were things that he said particularly about like emotional withholding and, and sort of being distant and unavailable that like really Sure. Yeah. Thanks for that. Any any others? Yes. I'm a uh, I'm a gay a gay male, um, and my older brother sexually abused me as a kid, and so that took me right there. Mm -hmm. um, I was able to do forgiveness work with my brother and move past that, but the result was that I became a very addicted person, mm. four different addictions, and so. Mm -hmm. And so just, you know, seeing that, it was like, you know, yeah, I, I just really, it just really took me back. Yeah. Thank you for your sharing and that vulnerability. I appreciate that. Yes. I guess, I don't know if I have much to add, but just what Justin said about um, you know, being able to identify with that man once he started talking about how withholding his feelings and keeping people in the dark was part of his pattern. Mm -hmm. That was the moment when... <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Thanks. Somebody over here? Yep. As an addicted person in recovery, I uh, resonated when he <clears throat> talked about he still struggles with these behaviors and he has to be held accountable and openly discuss it with his partner. Mm -hmm. And it's not just something that like, <coughs> I learned my lesson, now I'm different. Sure. You know, this is a compulsive behavior perhaps. 
deserves a lifetime of like working towards change, um, a persistent effort. Sure, sure. Thank you. Yes. Um, I was texting uh, um, what he said about verbal abuse too. Mm -hmm. um, I have abused both physical in my past, but I kind of think that I got used to that, mm. and that you know I could go someplace for the, that. Mm. Me, verbal abuse was almost worse. Sure. Than the physical. Mm. Mm. Sure. Thank you. Thank you for your sharing. So, yes. I felt angry. I, uh, yeah. My dad's dad was uh, abused, physically abused, verbally abused, emotionally abused. Like my dad's mom and all of his siblings, and it had such such consequences of, of like spread out, out of the whole family. And he never got to that place. But um, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. So. <clears throat> to, to go along with, with Wendy, Wendy was mentioning feeling angry, who, who, who in here thinks, like, calls BS on him? You know, like, uh, that was all great, fine and well, but I'm not convinced. Okay. Yeah, several folks, right? Absolutely. And, and so I want to name that because I think that, you know, there's a lot of different ways to react. You know, there's, there's is the feeling to think, oh, wow, it's... You know, there's a very, very rare moment where we hear a man naming and claiming responsibility for things um, and, and, uh, and all of that, and that's important. But at the same time, um, you know, obviously, as many of you talked about the destruction in your own lives that you felt from patri how patriarchal masculinity and that lived out in a man's behavior towards you impacted you, like, that's some serious stuff. And how do we know that Billy wasn't up here just reading from a script that somebody made him write down. And, and that, you know, tomorrow, the next day, he went out and his new partner, who he said was Julia, is now feeling the same abuse and aggression and feeling trapped and all those same things. How do we know that? That's right. We don't. Exactly. And we don't. I still don't, right? Billy completed the program and went on with his life. And, you know... How do, I don't know what Billy's doing today. I don't know, you know, if there are other women in his life or other people in his life, children, um, trans folks, gender nonconforming folks that, that are feeling that way based on their relationship with him. I don't have any way of knowing that. All of what you, you all shared and you kind of got take away from this is it makes sense and is important. And at the end of the day, what we need to start with is naming that like, we all want Billy to be the problem, and we all want to be able to take Billy, put him somewhere, fix him, and then bring him back to the mainstream society where that isn't the way things work, right? Billy is this deviant that is operating outside of the social norm, and if we just fix Billy, and Bill, people like Billy, everything will be okay, right? But the reality is that's not true. That while Billy is responsible for his behavior, he should be held accountable for what he's done, um, he is ultimately not the problem. That Billy actually is just what I would call a loyal soldier to this patriarchal teaching that all of us in this room who identify as male 
and all of us really have, have learned, but, but those of us who are male have learned that the way Billy operates is the way we should operate as well. And we all want to, like several, several feet people shared, we all want to say, that's not me. But what we're going to talk about tonight is looking at how, what, what are the ways in which this is, this is me? And that I have to start by looking at how do I make the changes I need to make and then I can do the work in the community to, make the change, to help make the changes in a broader sense as well. And so we're going we're gonna to kind of dive into that um, here very quickly because time is running. And I'm terrible with time, so I'm going to do my best to not keep out here until 9 p.m. But uh, all right. <laughs> Got one permission. Um, so, can I ask a question? Sure. Was there, some, was there violence? Did Billy experience violence in his, you know, to him? In his life. In his life? I honestly, I'm not sure, to, to, be, to be honest. Um, and so, um, so the question was, did Billy experience violence in his life? And what I will say, and what, what, we, what we will learn as we go through this here tonight, is that, that men perpetuating violence, a precursor for that is not experiencing violence. Um, and so we're going to talk a lot more about that as we, as we go. Um, but this is a community accountability model of men's violence against women. And, and the reason it's called that is because it's looking at it. I mean, Men's Stopping Violence's sort of main core work was looking at men's violence against women, both in intimate relationships as well as more broadly in the community. Um, but patriarchal masculinity, as we've talked about and as we've heard from people's experience here, affects all of us, regardless of how we identify uh, our gender, our gender identity and expression. Um, and so I want to just name that as we go through this. And I'm going to do, try to do some examples that, that broaden it beyond just men's violence against women. Um, so if we take Billy, he, here's Billy, this individual male. And we've heard the horrific things that, that Billy has done. And I'm telling you tonight that Billy isn't ultimately the problem, that it's bigger than him. And what I'll tell you is that, but Billy does serve a function in a larger system, okay? He plays a role. So what is Billy's role? And this is going to be probably really hard to read from, for some of you in the back. I probably broke the rules about like 18 point font on um, PowerPoint, so I apologize about that. But it says uh, under, under the individual that his role is to control, Okay, it is to live out his privilege in relationships and to solidify his authority. So real quick, what what is what does that mean? So lives out his privilege in relationships. And I can tell you a story from my own life and the ways in which privilege shows up even when when we aren't looking for it. So my partner Hillary and I were. Going when we've, we got in, we're in a relationship together and we were getting serious and we were like let's go buy a home together um, and we were in Atlanta and we so we went through the steps of finding a mortgage company to go to and we go to this company and um, we had we made an appointment and we walk into the bank that day and the the mortgage broker is there to meet us and um, we walk in and we're kind of just talking and 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 she walks up and she's just so overjoyed to meet us and she's like oh. Hi, Mr. Trammell. She starts talking to me about everything, shakes my hand, um, you know, says polite greetings to both of us, but really starts rolling out the red carpet for me. Let me go. You want anything to drink? Do you need coffee? 
We, I think they may have had some muffins or something. Um, I probably ate them because anytime somebody offers me a free muffin, I go for it. But anyway, so there's this, there's this over uh, joy of treatment um, and how she's treating me. And so we walk in and we go to her, uh, her office in the back of the, the building and we sit down. She starts talking about the loan process. And starts pushing all the papers our, uh, my way and talking about, here's what we need you to fill out. And we need to get your pay stubs and these type of things. And in that moment, um, we, Hillary and I start talking. And because and, uh, she probably noticed the look on our face. And I said, you know, actually, um, I'm, I'm a full-time student. And I have a part-time job. And I you know, make less than $500 a month. Oh. Well, I thought, I said, yeah, actually, my partner here, she's a full-time teacher making decent money so it's going to make really she's going to be the process is going to go more through her and um she's like oh oh perfect yeah great and all of a sudden i might as well have not been in the room right (laughs) but but there you have it so there's this moment where we're greeted with privilege in our relationships in society and we move through the world in ways where things are, you know, Billy talks a lot about that. And we're going to talk more, more significantly about, you know, how other people treated him after even they knew he was abusive in his relationship. The ways in which questions were asked and conversations were had. Um, and so we live out that privilege in our relationships. All right. And there's many other examples. One thing I will say, and then I'm going to I'm invite some of you to share some of the examples that, that you may know about. Um, is that, that not all men share the same level of privilege, right? Is that because of white supremacy, racism, heterosexism, there are many other ways in which uh, those of us who identify as male don't share the same level of privilege. Um, just, just to give you a quick example. Um, so we, Billy talked about the class that he took, the 24-week class. So we offered that class at Men's Stop and Violence at our location. We also did a court class at the DeKalb County Courthouse that we taught every two weeks for men who had been arrested uh, for being abusive in relationships. So they had been arrested, and they had to take this class as part of, of them being let out on, on, on bail until they went to court. Oh, thank you. Um, and so every two weeks we would teach this class, and there's many a times I, I helped teach the class with one of our, another facilitator. And week after week after week, there were 60 or 70 men in this class. And about 95% of them were men of color. So DeKalb County was about 54% African American at the time. It was probably about 17% Latinx. Um, and then a small percentage of, of other men who identified in other ethnic groups. So it, it ended up being about 30-something percent white men in, in um, DeKalb County. So 95% men of color, and and predominantly, I'd say 90% of those men were black. They make up 54% of the population of the county, and they represented the low 90% of men in this room every two weeks. And so we can see that, like, the over-policing of communities of color and the ways in which white men have privilege to avoid incarceration, even when they commit egregious acts of violence. Um, and so not all men share the same level of privilege, even in the midst of this type of, of thinking about the ways in which they act out their patriarchal masculinity. 
So one of the, the other things about the, the, the class at Men Stopping Violence that Billy was describing being part of is that that class, some of the men in the class were court-ordered and some of the men in the class were um, there, quote-unquote, on their own. They just came to take the class. And it was a lot more diverse. Um, there was a lot of white men that took that class over time. Um, and what would be pretty common would there would be, you know, lower-income men of color were court-ordered, um, and then some lower-income white men were court-ordered, but majority, the overwhelming majority, almost exclusively middle and upper-class white men, were able to come in that class and say, I'm coming by choice, right? The ways in which we feel like, hey, Billy made a positive step in his life to do something different. And the ways in which that continues to feed into stereotypes to further white, a white supremacist notion about who people are based on the color of their skin, right? So if I don't, if I don't go into my work with men stopping violence with, with, without a deep anti-racist understanding and, and continuing to do that work, I just continue to, to buy into the negative racial stereotypes and continue to reinforce racism and white supremacy in my work to end men's violence against women. And so those are the ways in which, so while we say that we live out our privilege, that privilege looks different. And it isn't available in the same level to everyone, right? And so solidifies his authority. So the, real quick on this one, um, you have a checklist that, that is probably right in front of you. So the checklist is it's called the MSV Behavior Checklist. And so as you see from this list, you can look at the different behaviors. But Billy talked about his pattern of abuse and the different ways in which he implemented his control over his family, the dominance and control that he had in his, his relationship and with his children and his partner. And you can look at this list and see that this is what we're talking about here. And a couple of the, the men in the room mentioned that, like, at first, you know, when he was talking about physical abuse, that wasn't me. But then all of a sudden, there were some things mentioned. And that's, and that's what we have to realize is that that's where we all need to take a look at this list. And understand that these are the things, these are the behaviors that we as men use time and time again. And you know, it, it's always inevitable that somebody either says it or is thinking, well... I know women who do those things too, or I know uh, other folks who identify as gender nonconforming or trans folks that, that do these behaviors in their relationships. And you know what? That's probably true. But at the end of the day, as we will see, there's behaviors used and then there's behaviors used within the context of a larger system that's in place that is reinforcing and supporting those behaviors. Right? And so that's what that's what um, my answer to that is, if anyone's thinking it. So as you look at these things, let me, let me just look at my notes here because, you know, that's, like I said, I never, never pay attention to them too closely. So uh, what, are, what are people's thoughts? Like, so as you see this first part here, what are, what are some of the things that came up for you? Examples you may want to share or initial thoughts off from, this, from looking at the individual? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. You know, what I see, he's trying to place the guilt.
directly on community. Hmm. So what I see in him, I see a sick person, hmm. spiritually sick person. Sure. Because uh, what made him to be aggressive and abusive? Mm-hmm. Maybe something happened to him in the past. Mm-hmm. Maybe he was a victim of abuse. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe his mother or father or his sister or brother abused him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a repeating pattern over and over and over again. Sure. So he needs healing as well. well absolutely. He's a victim of his own uh, behavior. Sure. You know? Sure. Yeah, so just, so and we're going to get way, way more into that. So thank you for that. So other, other things. Yes. So the one that touched me is the, uh, the idea of, of being afraid to ask for help. Mm-hmm. The idea of being a people pleaser and so that there's aspects of self care. And that's one of those I was like, oh, mm-hmm. thank you. I said was related to him on a way that I've not seen before. Sure. Sir. So any other, any other things that come up in this before we move on? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we reflected on as a leadership team was uh, in the church, there was a pretty popular pastor that became famous for saying that he would never worship a Jesus that he could beat up. Mm. And, uh, and there was this overly masculinized uh, view of Jesus of God, and that also played out in his leadership. Hmm. And uh, so I'm, I'm, yeah. So that's just a way that the church plays into it. That's a very like extreme case, but I think it happens a lot implicitly, if not that explicitly. Yeah. Well, wow. everybody hear that? Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we're going to move on to the next thing. So, like we said, if if the individual male is not the problem, and there's a bigger system in place, then where do we go from here? And we're going to look at the primary community. And so, you know, here's some of the, the folks that make up the primary community. It's our family, it's our peers, sports teams, gangs, fraternities, um, obviously other, other homogeneous male spaces that we're in from a young age. Um, so this is this. And what do, you, what do you imagine is the function of this, of this level of community? Anybody? Making money. Making money. Okay, that's part of it. Yes. Finding what it is to be a man. Defining it, what it is to be a man. Okay. So let's, sometimes I like to do like a little like family feud, like survey says. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yep. Um, so it is to socialize, to define, right? To, to set the, the definitions of what it means. And I'll read this again. It says to nurture rigid gender role conformity and to train males in destructive masculinity and preps for war. So when we think about rigid gender role conformity, I mean, so let's think about for a minute, what is, when you think about like, what is the, a man's man? What are, what are some of the things that, that that means to you? Trump. Guns. 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 Trump. What else? Kill. 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 Right. Violence. Absolutely. Military. Military. Lack of emotion. Lack of emotion. Disciplinarian. Disciplinarian. Domination. Like a limited emotional range. Like you get to be happy or angry and, and that's it. Right. Yep. An emotional, limited emotional range. Absolutely. Yep. Other things. Somebody's hand in the back. No. Trucks. <laughs> Trucks. All right. Thanks for that. Uh-huh. Yes. Being the alpha male. Being the alpha male. Being smarter. Being smarter. Absolutely. So... 
control, somebody said. So many of you mentioned a lot of the things that I have down, but, but there's this idea that we win at all costs, right? It's a zero-sum game. There's only winners and losers. There's no, there's no way to collaborate or work together. We're always right. We have the final say. Um, and, then, and then I want to I move into this next, this next notion of this, of this destructive masculinity piece and, and talk a little bit about sexual, um, kind of what does it mean sexually to be a man, right? The man's man. And some of those things are have lots of sex, right? Sex on demand. To believe in like when I do like this, I do something good for you, I should expect sex in return. Um, the point of no return. There's a point of no return. If you go that far, you wanted it, right? Um, no means yes. Women's bodies are created for the, as an object of men's pleasure. So, so there's these, these destructive notions of masculinity that, that are being pumped to us at this age. You know, I can remember being a young man playing sports. And, and when I started, you know, liking, you know, thinking about being romantic or being in a relationship and other guys were like, you know, asking those questions, you going to get some, right? Or, hey man, if you don't wear the pants in the relationship, you wear the skirt, dude. And we can all come up with stories that we, you know, ways in which we were socialized to think this way. And men stopping violence, uh, one, our definition of, of sexual, of male sexual violence, actually, and I'm, this is probably a whole other presentation, but I'm, I'm going to put it out there because I think it's important to name it, is that it was male expectation of sexual acts combined with tactics to compel submission. Right? That we have these beliefs about what it means to, for, as a man to be sexual, and then we are... We have these tactics that we learn to compel submission. And many times we think of, once again, those extreme things like physical rape or sexual, you know, sexual assault, physical assault. Um, but there's a lot of, there's also a continuum of ways that we compel submission. If I, you know, how many men have pouted when their partner didn't want to have sex? Tactic to compel submission, right? You've heard, I'm not, I'm not interested right now. And then there's an, a, a behavior to attempt to compel submission. So when we think about the definition in those ways, all of a sudden, once again, more of us can be implicated. And we can begin to see that, okay, maybe there's not, there isn't such thing as the good guys and the bad guys here. Um, so this, this, this idea that um, preps for war, and, and some of you touched on it um, when you said unemotional and a limited emotional capacity. Because what does it take for a soldier to go out to battle, kill somebody, pack up their gun, and go, go have dinner? Right? Like, how is that even possible? What, what, what happens to make that possible? You have to dehumanize the other. Detachment, dehumanization. Absolutely. Right? Like, that, that is what the socialization process is about, is about... We as men are taught to dehumanize the feminine. That to be, to be like, like, most of what defines a man actually is not to be feminine. So we can say here's what, a, here's what an ideal man is, but actually it's just don't be, don't be feminine. 
You know, don't be non-conforming. Don't be trans. Don't, don't go down that path. And so in the same ways that white supremacy teaches us as white people in the room to dehumanize people of color in the same exact ways, right? That if I think this of you, I can tolerate you being treated in awful, terrible, destructive ways and go home and have dinner. You know, how did, how did you see those pictures of white people standing around eating while there's a black man lynched right behind them? And they're just, kids are there, it's all this happy time. How is that possible? But I've been taught those same beliefs that if I was alive in that moment, I could have been standing right there. And so we have to begin to deconstruct what are the attitudes and beliefs we've been taught at this point. And how do we begin to, to deconstruct those and push ourselves to learn differently? And, and I want you all to know that this, it's like walking up the down escalator. If any of us stop doing this work around racism, around sexism, if we stop for even a moment to take a breath, the escalator is going to move us backwards. Because these messages aren't stopping. We're get, they're all around us. We're getting them every, every time we open our eyes. We turn on the TV. We get in the car. We go to work and listen to a staff meeting. You know, it's happening all around us. And so we have to be vigilant to continue to pump a different narrative for ourselves and for the other people in our life. So one of the ways, um, well, first, before, before we go on, I'm, I want to invite um, just any sharing for this piece. Any other additional? Yes. Just earlier this week, there was an article published online about toxic mas- masculinity within the gay community mm-hmm. because there are still uh, tapes that play, tapes, please forgive the 70s reference, mm-hmm. tapes <laughs> that play uh, within the gay community of gender conformity and that trans men and drag queens are turned away at gay bars. Mm-hmm. And just as men of a certain age, men of, of color are often are also turned away. But that it's, that sadly, toxic masculinity still exists within that community. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Hmm. Because there are a lot of men and women, for that matter, in my life who are living out the script, and it's just heartbreaking. Hmm. But I just like really feel. Yeah. Thank you for naming that, and appreciate your vulnerability there. And absolutely, and there's a lot of people in all of our lives, right, that are living out the script. And there's a lot of us that are living out this script, like we said, in different ways um, that we need to begin to recognize, take responsibility for, and change. So let's look at the next thing. So, so now we're talking about the micro-community. And the, the, the places that make up uh, the micro-community, so faith communities, right? Where are we tonight? Schools, civic groups, social service agencies. 
What would you imagine is the role that these groups play in this larger system? To reinforce. Right. To reinforce. They, have, they have roles that people have to fall into. Right. Like a social service agency will have. They maintain destructive and oppressive systems. Amen. Right. They maintain destructive and oppressive systems. Absolutely. And the word we use for that is enforce. Um, they, re- they reward. They reward. Mm-hmm. They reward rigid gender role conformity. They punish flexible and diverse gender expressions. And they provide the gatekeepers. So in these institutions, it begins to, um, you know, men who, who represent that notion of masculinity we just talked about begin to be rewarded for that and moved up in leadership. And, you know, and there's also ways in which these communities, um, it, you know, inhibit people, women and other people, um, from, from being able to find leadership in, in these institutions and in these local community groups. Um, so one of the ways that this has played out, there's, there's a couple of examples of horrific violence that have taken place through the years. And some of you may remember the story from, it's been um, several years ago, uh, Brennan Tina. Anybody recognize that name? Brennan was a transgender male who had moved from where he grew up to this other small town um, to try to make a new life for himself. And he was dating a young woman, and her friends uh, found out that he was trans. And they brutally raped him. And then when he went to, um, to the authorities uh, to report it, after, he, after that experience, he reported it, and then later, a day or two later, they, they killed him. And so the girl's friends, young men, men who were friends with um, a young woman he was dating. And so, so that's an extreme example of the ways in which flexible and diverse gender expressions are punished, right? Uh, Larry King is another um, gender non-binary young man who was going to school. He was 14 years old. And um, this happened in Oxnard, California, about four or five years ago. And they, um, Larry um, was assigned male at birth and chose to, to dress in more traditionally uh, female attire at school and would wear makeup. And um, they had this Valentine's thing where they encouraged students to go and tell somebody that they wanted to be, hey, I want you to be my Valentine's. And so... He, he said that to a, another young man um, in his school. And this young man was so enraged that two days later he came to school with a gun and shot him dead in computer class. And, and Larry was um, a person of color. And this young man was a, a white young man. So the overlapping rage... Of, of this young man's both sexism, homophobia, and racism was so, he was so angry and he was so loyal to those teachings that he couldn't imagine any other way but to kill 
Larry. And obviously, we can we can talk about um, you know the the example from just a few years ago where um, the Stanford student Brock Turner raped the woman who was unconscious on the campus. And after going to trial, he got six months in prison. And then at the, around the same time, Corey Beatty, who was a football player, African-American football player at Vanderbilt University, similar, similar act, raped a young woman with some other players. And he faces 15 to 25 years in prison. So both men did horrific and terrible acts. There's no, um, this isn't a, this, sharing this is not to, to say that, he, that one was treated, you know, too harshly or, or whatever. But what I'm saying is, is, is to acknowledge once again that the, the overlapping way that white supremacy and sexism and misogyny um, are interrelated and overlapping. So any, any other thoughts real quick? Because I'm running quickly out of time here, not to keep you too long. So any other, any other thoughts? Yes. Just one more example of, I think, how um, institutionalized racism and oppression, systems of oppression, specifically women in the undocumented community, right. um, in those same systems, because a lot of times you are hiding in the shadows of a country that does not allow you to be here, quote, unquote. Right. So therefore, who are you going to turn to? There's no authority. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for that. So we're going to move to the next level, which is the macro community. And so we're looking at um, the, the institutions that make up this macro, this national macro community. And this is religion, government, corporations, mass media, and the Supreme Court. And we could spend another hour just in this section, but I'm going to fly through it really quickly because we are running quickly out of time. So this, this um, level of our, of our society, is the role is to instruct, okay? To construct and dismantle, I mean, to con- sorry, I can't read it very well. To, it constructs and dismantles the manual, quote-unquote, on structural inequalities, sexism, heterosexism, racism, and classism. Steers and controls resources. So real quick, how, how are, what are some, before I give some examples, what are some examples that you all can think of from this, from this area, this level of society? It defines the gender roles you get to pick, officially. Right, defines the gender roles, yeah, the gender identity that you get to pick. That's a good point. What else? Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Yes. It reinforces the stereotypes of like men being the breadwinners when jobs that are historically held by males get paid so much more than jobs that are like quote feminine. Right. Right. So it reinforces the the kind of breadwinner um, viewpoint because men get paid way more and in those roles. Absolutely. Yes. I mean the entire cabin operation is happening right now. Absolutely. Right. The entire situation with Judge Kavanaugh's confirmation is that someone's come forward saying they were sexually assaulted and they're like, how do, how do we get through this, this quick process so he can be confirmed, right? It's this, 
It's this downplaying. And, and to the fact that his, the person who confirmed him has how many allegations of sexual assault already against him, and he still got elected to be president, right? Um, somebody had their hand up over here. Yeah, I was just thinking of uh, really violent movies um, glorifying, you know, just killing all kinds of people as being that kind of guy, you know, super macho. Absolutely. Right, the ways in which um, media companies put yeah. out movies that are extremely violent. Um, and so, so all of those are absolutely true. And some of the ways in which uh, this happens in our government, as I was thinking about um, um, Senator Kamala Harris and Representative Maxine Waters, and recently as they've challenged this system, right, in, in different things, in hearings, in government situations, how has the media then attacked them and described them in both racist and sexist ways to dehumanize them and to marginalize them within the halls of government as elected officials who are, you know, should be equal to the men, but these white men come up with attacks on them as, as individuals and, hum, you know, as um, elected officials to dehumanize them further, right? So that's the ways in which sexism and, and racism overlap. Um, another quick example is um, from a religious standpoint, the ways in which um, the Muslim faith is dehumanized as this violent, uh, faith in our society that is about murdering and killing people all the while is downplaying and not taking responsibility for the ways that Christianity does the exact same thing. And we claim this moral high ground in America as if we are the moral authority and we get to decide who, you know, which groups of people um, are, are acting in a more, out of a place of moral morality. And so there's another way in which um, the system, once again, um, combines Islamophobia, racism, with, with sexism as well. So I'm going to push it one more time, and I promise this is it, because I'm already right at time. So th- the last thing here is the global community, right? And the, the role of the global community is to anchor this all home, is to hold this in place, is to provide the historical foundation and to deny and justify the impact. So if any of you have read or at least experienced parts of uh, Howard Zinn's book, The People's History of the United States of, the, of America, he talks about in, in sort of the introduction of that book that, that um, history is usually t- told from the standpoint of, of the conqueror or the, or the oppressor, right? And so that's really what that is saying here is that, that we, we tell history in a way that romanticizes the past, and that denies the atrocities that we sit here and benefit from today, all of us. The, the ways in which um, people of African descent were enslaved, the ways in which um, native peoples on this land were genocide, all, in the, all in, the, in the name of manifest destiny. That white... Males were meant to, to do this. We were God-ordained to take over this land and wipe, wipe out anybody and use people's labor exploitatively. Um, that all those things were just God's um, blessing in our lives, right? And so, you know, and just also, too, the ways in which government, like religion as, at, a, at a global level um, perpetuates a male, you know, not, not exclusively, but predominantly, a, like a male deity, 
and, and the ways that it's happened over the course of history. Um, so, so real quick, the last thing on, on this, and, and, and then we'll, we'll start wrapping up. And so if this is the full system, and I'm going to pass this model out to you at the end. I have a copy for everybody to take with them so you can have it with you um, and kind of continue to reflect on it, maybe have conversations with folks after this. Um, but, but the last thing is, wh- how do we, what do we do with this, right? That's the question. Where do we go from here? So the, the last piece here are the arrows, okay? And I like to talk about this briefly as like a machine and like a vehicle. And like what, so there's, there's a feedback mechanism that, that, that happens in vehicles. And it's like oil, right? And so oil goes throughout, runs throughout the whole engine and, and keeps kind of the machine running. And as long as the oil is pumping through the system, it's giving feedback to different aspects of the system of like moving the message along that everything is okay, that, that all is well, it's keeping things oiled and going and, and moving along. So what we, what we have to do is figure out what are the ways in which I am situated in a place to begin to disrupt this flow? So what, what is my role in disrupting that? Obviously, as an individual, I can do that. And I should do that. And we should all do that. Obviously, in my family and in my local community where I have situated influence, I should do that. You know, And we can go through and, and continue to talk about the ways in which we can continue to interrupt this. Um, organizing collectively to, to make our vote matter in different ways. Um, and so there's lots of different ways, but the goal here is to begin to figure out that way that we can do that. Shine light in the darkness, please. Absolutely. So it's about 8.03, so I kept you three minutes long, and I really apologize. Um, but is, before we leave, um, is there any other last, last thoughts or Things anybody wants to share before we before we wrap up. So, okay. Um, I'm past eighty. I have three sons who are in their fifties right now, mm-hmm. and I did about thirty-five years ago. In, in I hadn't thought about it much, but he was verbally abusive. Their father was. Mm-hmm. And never, yeah, yeah, got tired of that. Uh, and they're all married, and mm-hmm. um, it had been for very for a very long time, mm-hmm. and I have, uh, I guess, threatened them with violence, that if I ever learn that they have abused their spouses, I will arrange to have them castrated. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And I think that wraps us up. Thanks so much. <laughs>